Blog Talk Radio. We have been broadcasting since 2010 and have interviewed dozens of aviation people, including airline presidents, aviation book authors, aviation safety specialists, aviation educators, airline personnel, military aviators, victims of air disasters, university professors, TV and media people, and many, many more over 13 years of radio broadcasting. We have over 800 episodes in the archives now, the radio show, 
and hopefully more to come. For most of these 13 years, our broadcasts were live with callers from around the world. As a matter of fact, over 50 countries tune us in from time to time. We have a very mature audience in the late ages of life. Thus, we have changed our format to a podcast, meaning the hour every Monday evening has been pre-recorded and presented as Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. Now, here's a sample of what we like to read on these shows. I was going through old data today and reviewing the past. The following is a copy of an editorial I wrote for one of the 2017 Silver Falcons newsletters. I reprint it because it is still the way I feel about my career. The 2017 Spring Editorial Reads. All I ever wanted to be was a DC-9 captain. The DC-9 was a truly fun airplane to fly. The crews were young and bright and enthusiastic, and we all knew each other's names. Mostly, we flew together for the entire month, or at least for the entire three days sequence. We made plans about what to do on the next layover, or what to do on the next trip, or what to do that night in Louisville. We didn't get a layover in the big cities like New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco, and our international flying peaked with the occasional layover in Montreal or a flight to the Bahamas. But little city layovers were a hoot. We knew and understood and respected each other. We were friends. We were a crew. We were all a part of flight operations, which, as crew members, flying on the same airplane and flying as a crew, we should have, we should have been. We were scheduled together and operated as a cohesive unit. No one should be allowed to have as much fun as we had. Life was good. One day, Eastern, in its infinite wisdom, decided that our beautiful flight attendants were no longer part of flight operations and were to be assigned to a new department known as in-flight service. Flight attendants were now scheduled differently and different duty rigs and different trip combinations, and our happy little world fell apart. Suddenly, it became a contest between them and us. Every time the stairs came down, the flight attendants got off, and a new group got on. No one knew anyone else, and most of the time, we didn't even get to know their names. Suddenly, what had been a happy and cohesive unit, united in doing a good job, became a plane full of strangers, and the friendship and cooperation that had developed over so many years simply disappeared. We no longer knew each other, and distrust and animosity replaced the friendship and respect we once had for each other. In-flight service deliberately fostered this conflict to separate the two departments. Our happy and contented crews of yesterday didn't even like each other anymore. The cockpit door divided us into separate groups, and it became a challenge to even get a cup of coffee. Thank God I met my wife while we were all still good friends. 
I began flying the DC-9 in 1969 and as an old-timer on the airplane when the pay scale was split between the DC-9 and the Boeing 727. I was grandfathered to the 727 pay scale. <clears throat> there was no need to upgrade since there would be no pay raise involved and all I wanted to, to be was a DC-9 captain. Frank Borman came along and, in his infinite wisdom, proceeded to buy millions of dollars in new airplanes that he was unable to pay for. Eastern had always made an operating profit, but was simply unable to service Frank's debt. His solution to the problem was to ask for pay cuts from the Eastern employees to finance his folly. For some reason, I am unable to remember Frank Borman ever taking a pay cut pay cut too. As a matter of fact, every time he talked us into a pay cut, he received a bonus for doing a good job. When the pay cut came, I finally upgraded to the Airbus just to protect my DC-9 paycheck. This worked for a time until the next pay cut came, and once again, just to protect my DC-9 paycheck, I went to Miami as an Airbus instructor just to get the instructor's pay scale and override. I remained as a temporary instructor based in Atlanta to get the benefit of tax-free per diem to commute to Miami to instruct. Finally, the crushing blow. They began to tax our per diem. To continue the process of protecting my DC-9 paycheck, I became a permanent instructor based in Miami. Later, I did the DC-10. Eastern would not release me from the Airbus training department, and I was now dual qualified on both the DC-10 and the Airbus, still vainly trying to protect my DC-9 paycheck. The airline had been sold to Frank Lorenzo, and when we selected to elected to honor the IAM strike, I chose to honor the picket line and became a striking pilot still trying to protect my DC-9 paycheck. I retired from the picket line on my 58th birthday. At this point, we go back to the first paragraph. All I ever wanted to be was a DC-9 captain. The DC-9 was a truly fun airplane to fly. The, flight, the crews were young and bright and enthusiastic, and we all knew each other's names Mostly, we flew together for the entire month, or at least for the entire three-day sequence. We made plans about what to do on the next layover, or what to do on the next trip, or what to do that night in Louisville. We didn't get to layover in the big cities like New York, or Los Angeles, or San Francisco, and our international flying peaked with the occasional layover in Montreal, or a flight to the Bahamas. But little city layovers were a hoot. We knew and understood and respected each other. We were friends. We were a crew. We were all a part of flight operations, which, as crew members flying on the same airplane and flying as a crew, we should have been. We were scheduled together and operated as a cohesive unit. No one should be allowed to have as much fun as we had, Life was good. All I ever wanted to be was a DC-9 captain. 
How I wish that Eastern had been run by competent management and had been financially successful and that they finally let me taxi in one day in my DC-9 to be sprayed by the fire trucks and to be congratulated by my friends, served a cake at the gate, and allowed to go home and be happy, a happily retired DC-9 captain. It was a great career and a great life. And the people I worked with were the world's greatest flight crews. And every flight was an adventure I shared and enjoyed with people I respected and loved. And I cherished every memory. Thank you all for making my career so happy and so filled with joy. I enjoyed flying the Airbus and the DC-10, but all I ever wanted to be was a DC-9 captain. This article was written by Dick Borelli. And thank you very much, Dick, for this career reminder of what we wanted to be with a great airline, Eastern Airlines. The San Juan Base by Marilyn Mittan. The year was 1970. As American boys were returning from Vietnam War, I was graduating from Florida Southern College in Lakeland, Florida. Even with a double major and a BS degree in psychology, there were few jobs to be found anywhere. It was rumored that Walt Disney was coming to Florida and looking for a location for a new theme park. Central Florida was the place to be. However, Disney World would take time to build, and I needed a job right now. As I was a white-knuckle flyer to school each year from New Jersey, being a flight attendant never entered my realm of possibilities. I wanted to be a nurse. My college roommate, on the other hand, had always wanted to be a stewardess and fly to those faraway places. She found a job listing with a New Orlando non-scheduled operation called Glen Air. As she helped me dress for the interview, she explained that this was a ground hostess position. I didn't find out until I was being interviewed that it was an air hostess position. I was hired and so began my airline career. Glenn W. Turner's Glen Air was one of a kind. We brought potential investors to Orlando for meetings at Coscott Interplanetary, Turner's Cosmetic Company. Mr. Turner was so proud of his airline that he would have his crews attend his Dare to be Great motivational seminars and have a stand-up to be applauded. He once handed out $50 bills to all the crew so we could have a good layover in New York City. Part of our uniform was a mink and leather coat. Some years later, I would have the privilege of upgrading Mr. Turner to first class from coach on one of my eastern flights. We flew Convair 440s, which was a very stable twin-prop aircraft. Our pilots were recently returned from Vietnam and were very blasé about in-flight problems. As long as the aircraft took off and landed, they were happy. One incident 
caused us to fly very low, violating New York airspace, and I noticed lots of black fluid coming out of the right-hand engine. Racing forward to alert the pilots, I opened the cockpit door to find them both pouring through the operation manual, trying to figure out how to coax some more altitude out of the airplane. When I exclaimed that the black fluid was coming out of number two engine, the pilot turned to me and nonchalantly remarked, Good, that means we have oil. Let me know if it stops. Unfortunately, Glen Eyre days were numbered, but I was hooked on flying, so in the fall of 1971, I applied Eastern Airlines during its annual local interviews. Eastern needed to staff the new wide-body aircraft with up to 14 flight attendants and was hiring. After six weeks of emergency training in Miami Springs and dinner with Dan Blocker of Bonanza, Joe Namath, the New York Jets quarterback, and my escort, astronaut Jack Swigert of the Apollo 13, we were all sent to a new base Eastern was opening in San Juan, Puerto Rico. In only six months, I was afforded the opportunity of senior flight attendant status and held lines of flying that normally required 20 years of seniority. By Eastern standards, our flights were unusually long, about three and a half hours, and were over water with no intermediate stops. San Juan to New York trips gave us the opportunity and time to entertain our passengers once the meal service was finished. We had contests and rewarded passengers with bottles of champagne. We also introduced hot towel service in first class on every flight and would carry extras with us from flight to flight. The late night New York to San Juan flight, dubbed the Roach Coach, was always entertaining. We had everything one could think of happen on these flights, even cockfights with real roosters in the back of an L-1011. On one Newark to San Juan flight in 1972, Senior flight attendant Hector Berdiel noticed an elderly woman who only spoke Spanish accompanying a three-year-old child who only spoke English. The woman was threatening to dump the child in a trash can as soon as she arrived in San Juan. We notified the FBI and they met our flight. As this beautiful brown-haired Shirley Temple had attached herself to me, I waited seven hours until the FBI released her into my custody. Three days later, on my regularly scheduled flight, I escorted this precious child back to Newark and into the arms of her mother, whom the FBI had located. In those days, a child under two years of age was not ticketed or charged as a fare. As Addie was three, Eastern was required to return her to her country of origin. I never did find out why this child was traveling to Puerto Rico being strictly forbidden to otherwise contact her in any way for fear of losing my job, I was only allowed to escort her home. I've always wondered how she's doing now. The bond we formed in those days was so strong, I would have adopted her if I could. Our San Juan crews were straight out of training in Miami. What we lacked in procedures we made up for in creativity and service not seen on the mainland. Puerto Rico was a resort destination, and Taylor Hogg, one of our flight attendants, compiled a history of the Commonwealth that she narrated on every approach to the island. Not speaking Spanish, I applied to the University of Madrid for a six-week summer course, paid for by Eastern. Airlines did things like that back then. It was called continued education pertinent to the job, and the educational leave of absence was encouraged. 
Airport security in those days was adequate, however, compared to today's standards, it would seem minimal at best. Returning from Spain with another flight attendant, we were in Rome for our flight to New York. Flying standby meant you arrived at the airport one or two hours early, listed yourself as standby, and then waited until the last minute to see if there was a seat available. Less than ten minutes before departure, we were given our seat assignments and told to hurry up to the gate. As we approached the security check, we realized the long lines meant we would miss this flight. Pulling out our crew ID badges, we jumped in the line and proceeded through the security check yelling, Airline employees! It worked. We made our flight home. In another security incident, my father came to Puerto Rico to fix my car. He brought his entire metal tool chest with him right through New York Airport. He put it on the x-ray belt and picked it up and was cleared to the gate. A security guard questioned the first guard, clearing my father, but she said, It's okay. It's Mr. Matan. She was from our town, and she knew my father. I don't think this clearance would work today. We didn't get off to a rocky start in the San Juan base. It was 1972, and the island was vying for statehood. A group against statehood called the Independentistas blew up a McDonald's, and Eastern became concerned for the welfare of its flight attendants. As the situation became more precarious, flight, Eastern Flight Flight started a free chauffeur service to pick up and drop off flight attendants on duty. The limo was driven by some of her own flight attendants. Eastern decided to have management from Miami come to the Dorado Beach Resort for a welcome to the new base meeting and a fashion show featuring our new uniforms. I was one of several flight attendants chosen to model the ensemble. When we arrived at the hotel early, expecting to return to San Juan the same day, unbeknownst to us, the hotel workers were in contract negotiations with management and things were not going well. They were aware that the eastern managers were visiting and decided to go on strike. After the fashion show, we prepared to leave when we realized that most of the hotel workers had already left. As we tried to leave the hotel, the workers blocked the driveway. Flight attendant Don Jones tried walking the fairway to leave through the tunnel at the far end of the grounds, but was met by workers armed with machetes and pitchforks. They demanded that he return to the hotel. Of course, this show of force was intended for the Eastern Airlines managers, but they had already been whisked away within 30 minutes by helicopter. Only the flight attendants were left to weather the storm. At first, we were afraid for our lives, but the next morning we became bolder. We had to eat. There was a dining room, but no staff. The Eastern employees remaining on the ground decided to to run the hotel for the few paying guests and themselves. After all, the hotel and the airlines had the same owners. We discovered we had a cook, but no waitresses. So naturally, we decided to fill in and took orders from the few hotel guests coming down to the dining room for breakfast. I poured coffee for the entire room. Suddenly, one of our flight attendants in the kitchen started to scream. We rushed into the kitchen to find that she had turned on the automatic dishwasher. In true Lucy at the Chocolate Factory fashion, she was trying to catch the plates as they, as they fell off the conveyor belt and smashed onto the floor. We laughed so hard our sides hurt, and we tried to save the dishes with the same vigor as we would evacuate an L-1011 in 90 seconds. So our situation became fun. We were all in our 20s, staying for free at a beautiful Caribbean resort. 
We had the entire place to ourselves. What more could you want? After our shifts, concierge, pool, and dining room duties, we all met in the bar where we could order whatever concoction we chose because the expert bartender was also an Eastern Airlines flight attendant. We, we were marooned in, a, in luxury for three days before the San Juan Police Department liberated us. The greatest compliment came from the hotel guests who eventually found out what was going on. Upon checkout, they admitted that they didn't have a clue for a day or two because of the superb service that was provided by us. So the San Juan base began. We joined the approximately 200 people belonging to San Juan Eastern Family on this Caribbean island, and for the next 13 years, we strived to make our flights to San Juan the very best. It was a wonderful and exciting career in which I was fortunate to make lifetime friends, plus meet many celebrities such as Robert Redford, David Hartman of Good Morning America, Cliff Robertson, Johnny Cash, Buddy Rich, Maureen O'Hara, Brooke Shields, and dignitaries such as Lady Bird Johnson and her six Secret Service agents. Eastern Airlines eventually became the official airlines of Walt Disney World, and in a way, I did work for Disney World as I had wanted to so many years before, and my college roommate, she became a nurse. We crossed our paths and traded careers. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York. Eastern's Transcon. I thought it might be interesting to learn a little more about one of Eastern's most famous aviators, Captain Dick Merrill. Henry Tyndall Dick Merrill was born February 1, 1894, in Iuka, Mississippi. He died October 31, 1982, at the age of 88. He was an early aviation pioneer. Among his feats, he was the highest paid airmail pilot flew the first round-trip transatlantic flight in 1936, was Dwight D. Eisenhower's personal pilot during the 1952 presidential elections, set several speed records, and would go on to be Eastern Airlines' most experienced pilot with over 36,000 hours until his retirement in 1961. In total, Merrill flew over 45,000 hours as pilot in command, covering over 8 million miles. At a time when record-breaking pilots were treated as celebrities, pioneer aviators like Dick Merrill gained a unique status. His most famous flight was a 1936 round-trip transatlantic flight that has gone down in the annals of flight as the ping-pong flight. The following year, Merrill also completed the first commercial transatlantic flight. He was born in 1894 in Iuka, Mississippi. He was born into a family that prided itself as being descended from the famous frontier pioneer Daniel Boone. Although his full name was Henry Tyndall, the name Dick was a childhood moniker that stuck with him for life. Brought up as a devout Catholic, he was a teetotaler in an age when the hard-drinking, fun-loving, arrow-adventurer was seen as a norm. 
Considered very easygoing yet serious, his one foible, however, was, was that he was an inveterate gambler throughout his life. Merrill had from an early age been intrigued by the exploits of the first flyers, and when he enlisted in World War I, he began learning to fly while stationed in France but returned home to work on the Illinois Central Railroad as a fireman. He began his aviation career in earnest when he purchased a war, war surplus Curtis JN4 Jenny in Columbus, Georgia in 1920 for $600. Flying into the air shows through the 1920s, briefly appearing with the Ivan Gates Air Circus in the mid-1920s. He eventually turned this into a career as an airmail pilot, flying the Richmond to Atlanta night route. By 1930, Merrill held the record for flying the longest cumulative distance and became the highest paid airmail pilot, earning $13,000 in 1930 at 10 cents per mile. Eddie Rickenbacker later called him the best commercial pilot in the United States. Unlike some of his peers, Merrill was a deliberate and careful pilot, so well regarded that many celebrities, his friend Walter Winchell and even General Eisenhower during his 52 presidential campaign, specifically requested him as a personal pilot. Merrill would always chalk up his successful flights more to luck than skill. A later compatriot, Merton Meade, related an antidote that summed up Merrill's flying luck. Dick often said he'd rather be lucky than good. When Eddie Rickenbacker owned Eastern, he always insisted on Dick flying the airplane whenever he had to travel. Dick always told the story, but Captain, you've got a hundred pilots on the line better than me. I know, Merrill, but you're the luckiest son of a bitch I've got, and I'd rather fly behind a lucky pilot than a good one any day. Typical self-effacing comment by Dick, I doubt there was ever a better airline pilot than Dick Merrill. Now here's about the famous ping-pong flight. He had planned his transatlantic flight for some time, but was unable to find, finance it or on his pay as an Eastern Airlines pilot. Things changed when he met millionaire singer Harry Richmond, famed for putting on the Ritz. After taking in the singer show in Miami, Merrill planted the idea for a round-trip flight of the Atlantic. He brazenly declared that they take the plane to Europe, then will gas her up and fly back. It's never been done. Richmond, who had recently gained his pilot's license, had been able to secure a Volte V1A capable of making the flight. The aircraft, NC-13770, had originally been built for Lieutenant Colonel George R. Hutchinson's proposed off-rate New York-London-Moscow airline, which never started up. Since then, it had served a number of pilots in various record-setting flights. In 1935, Jimmy Doolittle used the aircraft to make a record 11-hour, 59-minute transcontinental flight, and six weeks later, Leland Andrews repeated the flight, then used it to set a long-distance speed record between Los Angeles and Me Mexico City. Merrill and Richmond extensively modified the Volte V1A for the flight. Using Eastern Airlines mechanics, Merrill had extra fuel tanks installed and a 1,000 horsepower Wright Cyclone with a two-blade constant speed prop fitted. The most modern equipment was sought out, including the Hooven Radio Direction Finder, licensed to Bendix. It was Richmond's idea to fill empty spaces in the wings and fuselage with 41,000 ping-pong balls, which was hoped would allow the aircraft to float if it was forced down in the ocean. After modifications were carried out, 
They took off for London on September the 2nd, 1936. The two aviators were an odd couple, with Richmond flamboyant, while Merrill was always a studied professional. In a later interview, Merrill revealed a peculiar predilection to perfume. When flying, he usually had a vial of surrender or evening in Paris in his pocket, stealing an occasional stiff sniff over the Atlantic. When they were 600 miles off the coast of England, the pair ran into bad weather and eventually decided to put down in Landilo, Wales, about 175 miles west of London. The flight took 18 hours and 36 minutes, the fastest Atlantic crossing to date. The next day, Merrill and Richmond completed their flight to London. While in England, Richmond, ever the showman, christened the Valti the Lady Peace. On September 14th, they began the return flight from Southport, England. During the flight, while bucking headwinds, Richmond decided to dump 500 gallons of fuel, leaving them with insufficient fuel to make New York City. Furious that Richmond had panicked, Merrill was forced to put down on a soft bog at Musgrave Harbor in the Dominion of Newfoundland. After minor repairs and fueling, a week later they landed in New York. The usually easygoing relationship between the two pilots had been strained, but they ended up as friends again. The round-trip flight cost Richmond $360,000 and is known in aviation history as the ping-pong flight. Richmond sold autographed ping-pong balls from the flight for years. And that will be the conclusion of Part 1 of the Dick Merrill story. This article was taken from Wikipedia. Stay tuned for Part 2. Here's an interesting story we haven't told before. It's from the book, The Wings of Many. The story is a passenger leaps to death from Eastern Air Transport. The date was exactly 3-3 of 33. In the first part, we're going to learn about the story, about the passenger, how it occurred. In the second part of the story, we'll learn about the men that were involved in the search and then their later careers in the airline industry. worship the sun. Today, in Acapulco, what was once a primitive religion has become a fine art. 
Acapulco. Prices are now so low, you can vacation in Acapulco this year for the same kind of money you spent on last year's vacation. Call Eastern or your travel agent. See how easy it is to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to fly. A life-changing and fast-paced experience by Judy Holmes Wagner. I became a flight attendant in September 1968. Most of us joining Eastern at that time had left functional homes and were very young and naive. We had to be at least 20 and a half years old because of liquor laws in some states. Being raised Southern Baptist, I hadn't been exposed to much alcohol, even though I'd been in college for almost three years. The training center in Miami Springs and then my base in Atlanta were like candy stores, so many new things I'd never been exposed to before. As a trainee, we were quickly thrown into all situations. On my first flight, all of the other flight attendants were the age of my parents or older. Talk about being insecure. During my first meal service, I dropped some food on a first-class businessman. I just stood there with tears and asked if there was anything else I could get him. He was so nice about it. Fan flights were usually to New York, and being southern and friendly and a little overly enthusiastic and so proud of my uniform, I spoke to everyone. The senior flight attendant pulled me aside and said I had to quit that. What? If you're too forward, men will think you're a hooker. Dumb look, and I said, what's a hooker? Another learning experience was liquor. In the first class, it came in fifths, and you mixed them from scratch. I was asked for a Manhattan and told the gentleman that it was around New York somewhere. Another asked for an old-fashioned. Well, yes, sir, I am, and proud of it. They loved me. Their drinks were always stronger, and they told me how to mix them. I always experienced a lot of interesting flights, such as military air, airlift command and the first services to Mexico City and Acapulco. And I always enjoyed meeting famous people. Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, Tony Curtis, he signed my copy of the Boston Strangler that I just happened to be reading. And Tarzan himself, Richard Boone, who played Paladin, even came into my galley in, on a turbulent flight and helped take out the meals out of the oven. What a guy he was. Half meal will travel. In October 1969, I was married and a daughter was born in November 1970, one of the first for a working flight attendant. This was a very new idea for the times, and not too many flight attendants were married. And having a child wasn't an option if you wanted to remain on the job. It was still unusual for women to be gone from home overnight. Around May 1970, someone must have overheard me talking, because when I went to check in for my next trip, for the flight attendant supervisor asked me if I was pregnant. I didn't know enough not to say anything, so I said yes. Without so much as another word, she walked out of the room and returned a few minutes later and told me I was through and I needed to go home. She had taken me off my trip. I was in shock. My husband was still in college at Georgia State and we needed my income. 
Eventually, I got a part-time accounting job with the food division of R.J. Reynolds in Hapeville, Georgia. Sometime toward the end of my pregnancy, Eastern contacted me and said that flight attendants were now allowed to have children and continued to fly. Our daughter Heather was born November 28, 1970, and they gave me 90 days leave. When I returned, I was sent all the way to New York for a physical screening, testing, and recurrent training. I remember crying the whole time. I was hundreds of miles away from my new baby, and it felt very strange. My first trip back on the line was March 7, 1971. We have to remember today that being a flight attendant with a baby was very new. There were mixed opinions. Many people couldn't believe that we could leave our kid and fly off, especially be gone overnight. With my loss of seniority, I was back on reserve and had to fly three or four day trips. Luckily for us, we had a family friend who lived three doors from my mother-in-law in College Park. She set up a whole room for Heather and was able to keep her anytime, for a few hours or a few days. God bless Blake and Nima. It was really hard being a young wife, mother, and having a career that involved traveling and being away for many nights. A lot of things were changing for women in the 70s. Businesses had to become equal opportunity employers, and in 1976 I put in for a transfer to the ground staff in Portland, Oregon, which was a sea station where agents did everything, ticket counter, gates, ramps, cleaning, freight, and baggage. Only men were working there. (coughs) They even bought in a VP to give me the test, which was kind of funny as I passed, but now they weren't sure what to do with me. Well, they got me the smallest size jumpsuit and coats, all of them had to be altered, and turned a 125p female ramp rat loose. One day I was a neat, clean, fluffy flight attendant, and the next I'm a dirty, wet, cold, with bruises on every part of my body from loading heavy bags and cargo, and so tired I couldn't move. Every inch of my body ached. (laughs) What did I got myself into? While being initiated as a ramp rat, many tricks were played on me. On my first night on the ramp, they sent me to United Operations for 100 feet of flight line. I went and looked, and they told me that they had let Continental use it. So off I went there, then on to Northwest, then on to Western, etc., not knowing that they had all been in on it. Another time, they wanted me to get prop wash. So I told them that we had all been flying into Portland with jets. I opened my locker one night, and the bottom was full of baby possums. Another time, I was tied to a chair and rolled out onto the ramp. Everyone went home at the end of the shift, and the fire department had to come and let me loose. It was all harmless, but now that I think about it, it was a little scary at the time. Eventually, I became one of the guys, and everything went much smoother. In 1981, I became pregnant again, and I was able to hold the ticket counter, but I was still lifting 70-pound bags until three weeks before Amron was born. Eastern started cutting back on some flights, and Portland was affected. To hold my full-time status, I had to work split shifts, so I worked ramp for five hours, always wet, slept in the crew lounge for four hours, always tired, and then worked the ticket counter three hours, always a mess. After about a year of this, I decided enough was enough and bumped to Denver. I was there until the last Eastern airplane left in January 1991. We still have a reunion each year in Denver.
I didn't plan to be one of the first flight attendants to have a baby and continue to fly, but that's what happened. And my life's goal wasn't to be one of the first females working the ramp for a major airline, but that's what happened. The real story is that through all of this, I wouldn't undo anything. I thank Eastern Airlines for being there through marriage, children, divorce, job changes, and moving to different cities. Until the last flight left Denver, Eastern has always been with me. My husband still tells me that I have an E tattooed on my forehead, and I'm proud of it. God bless anyone that had anything to do with Eastern. We were and still are the best. Eastern Airlines presents A Flight of Imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. Working for Eastern at Walt Disney World by Mara Leonard. I had graduated from college the previous August. Being a single mom with college loans to pay, I was working two jobs. By day I was a teacher, by night I was a reservations agent at the Spanish desk in Miami. Part-time work with Eastern Airlines had helped put me through my last year of school, and I wasn't ready to give it up. Plus, there were those nasty student loans to deal with, and the lure of travel, travel was nipping at my heels. The familiarization trip that Eastern gave to all new hires had been my first trip on an aircraft since I was seven, and I was smitten. Being confined to a classroom with snarly, hormone-emitting 8th graders was not fun. Working for Eastern was. After struggling to get my degree and all the while working to support myself and my son, I was ready for something special to happen. And it did. It was a Friday in November, a school holiday, money was tight, and I volunteered to work for a full-timer who needed some time off. I was on the phone with a customer when my supervisor, Annie Agnew, a super lady and one of the best and most supportive supervisors I've had the pleasure of working for, tapped me on the shoulder and asked the agent sitting next to me that she, would she take over my call. Annie then asked to see me. Dear Lord, I thought, what have I done now? I was still really green. Shortly after graduating from reservations training, I was assigned the night shift on the Spanish desk. In those days, it was dead at night, and I was pretty much babysitting the phones for four hours. Calls were few and far between, and opportunities to hone my skills were limited. Today, I was working the day shift, and the calls came in rapid su succession. I was in over my head and barely holding up on by the seat of my pants. I was sure I had done something wrong and was about to be fired. Her desk was at the end of the row and I followed, preparing to meet my doom. Waiting for her was a tall, good-looking man. Annie looked at me and smiled. If she was not going to fire me, I thought she wouldn't be smiling. She certainly wouldn't be firing me in front of a stranger. Friend of her, stranger at me at least. Then she turned to me, speaking softly. Mara? I want you to meet Ray now. Ray used to work for me, and now he's the manager at Eastern's new office at Walt Disney World. He came by to say hi, 
and mentioned that he needs a few more people to staff the Walt Disney World site. I thought he might want to meet you. Okay, what's going on? Why would he want to meet me? Without hesitation, Ray, being very warm and friendly, jumped in and said, Annie tells me you lived in Orlando and that you're bilingual and that you just graduated from college. I was still very apprehensive about the situation, and for the life of me, I don't remember what I said, but it must have been something along the lines of yes, yes, and yes. Whatever I said, I didn't discourage him from following up with, well, what would you think about coming to work at Walt Disney World? What? What did he just say? It seems like you fit the profile of the people we're looking for, he said. If you're interested, I'll fly you up to Orlando to look around and meet some of the folks already working there. I can't guarantee you a spot because you still have to go through HR, but they've given me a wide berth in who I can hire. Five days later, I was on an airplane to Orlando, only the third time I'd ever flown. Ray picked me up at the airport, and we drove for what seemed like a long time. At about 30 minutes into the trip, we turned and entered the most pristine, manicured area of Central Florida that I've ever seen. It looked like another world, and I'd soon learned that this place was indeed just that. I was in a daze. I had barely slept the night before out of anxiety and anticipation, and this whole event seemed like a dream. As I reflect, there are a lot of blurry images that emerge. One is that crystal clear and defined magical world I was about to enter appeared suddenly, and we were driving on the road toward the contemporary resort. The road dipped precipitously, and as we approached what appeared to be an underpass, much to my amazement, seemingly out of nowhere, as if floating, little did I know what a waterway was above the tunnel we were about to enter, a huge battle paddle boat sailed across the road ahead of me and above us as if in flight the sight at first scared me then it intrigued me i had not realized that that underbass was taking us under the water channel that connected bay lake with the seven seas lagoon it was bigger than life totally unexpected and the sight has stayed with me for over 40 years little did i know that this was the only the beginning of the magical surprises that awaited me I didn't feel like an interview E for a job. I felt like Alice who had walked through the looking glass into an alternate reality. First I was taken into a magnificent cavernous fortress, mind-boggling in size and scope. It had a sleek, bullet-like vehicle traveling right through its center. Then, like a time traveler, I left the future and went back into a Polynesian paradise. And just like Alice fell down the rabbit hole, I did too, when I found myself in an underground city, Disney's parallel universe beneath its magic kingdom. This too was too much to handle. I kept pinching myself. This wasn't a job interview. It was a field trip. Like hundreds of thousands of children, I had spent countless hours glued to the TV, a devotee of the Mickey Mouse Club. How often did I wish I could be in that? How often did I wish that a little Mickey's magic would rub off on me, and now one of my wishes was being granted. No, don't pinch me. I don't want to wake up. As soon as I returned to reality, I knew I had to take my kids to Disney World. Somehow I sold the idea to my principal, and with, within two weeks, three busloads of kids and teacher chaperones 
as excited as their charges were heading for a day of magic. At this point, I still didn't know if I had the job, but I must have had some situation guiding me, as this was my parting gift for my students. When I got the call that the job was mine, I couldn't pack fast enough. I gave my notice at school, said goodbye to my boyfriend, who would later follow and become my husband. I called an old friend hoping she wanted a roommate, albeit one with a child, and she said she did. The stars had lined up with precision. A full tank of gas and all my earthly possessions in the back seat and in the trunk of my car, and we were headed to Orlando. Life was good. For five years, I worked at Walt Disney World, at the Contemporary, at the Polynesian, at the Wings of Man. My days consisted of waking up, realizing it was a work day, and rejoicing. I worked at the most incredible place for the best company in the world and with the greatest people on earth. How lucky can one person be? Today, 40 years later, I consider working for Eastern at Walt Disney World to be the happiest times of my life. During those five years, I was surrounded by the most dynamic, diverse, and intelligent group of people I have ever encountered. We shared wonderful times, some sad times, and as the years passed, we all went our separate ways. Most stayed with Eastern. There was a special bond created, now grayer, thicker, and slower. When we're together, the years melt away, and we are transported back in time. There's a fresh spring in our steps, a lilt to our voices, and a sparkle in our eyes. And yes, certainly a sadness as well. Tragically, Eastern is no more. We remain connected because of our Disney experience, but more because we were Eastern. And despite its demise, our identities have been forged, and we will be Eastern forever. Wow. It's been another evening listening to the fascinating stories and memories of a great airline, Eastern. We have plenty more to come during this series of broadcasts, and we hope you are enjoying reliving the times we spent with this legendary company of men and women, keeping the great fleet of aircraft in the air and making it one of the largest carriers in the free world. There are so many stories still out there that we want to share with you. It can be one of your stories or memories, if you would only tell us. You can do that by writing your story and emailing it to us so that it can be read during one of our future broadcasts. You can email it to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's eneal, N-E-A-L, holland at yahoo.com. And we'll do the rest. Of course, we'll let you know when it will be broadcast. You can also record it in your own voice and send to us at the same email address, enealholland at yahoo.com. It must be sent in an MP3 file. Most computers will default recording the recordings in that format or a WAV file. These are the only two formats of voice recordings that our broadcasting server will accept. If you want more information about how to do the recordings, you can call me, Neil Holland, at 904-866-8114, and I'll be happy to walk you through the process. It's very easy, and you will be sharing more of your memories of our beloved airlines in our broadcast. 
You'll be taking part in telling the story of Eastern Airlines. Well, that's about all we have for you tonight. And on behalf of Harry, Linda, and myself, we hope you'll be back for more Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, next week at the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and station blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. Now, good night, Eastern family. We'll see you next week.